Welcome to Bitchy History, the American history podcast that would like to begin this episode with a content warning. If you have a history of religious trauma related to evangelical Christianity, you may want to take a Valium before this episode or something. Here we are at episode 13. Today's episode will be a shorter one than planned for one massive reason. Last Tuesday, I woke up with a sore throat and a headache, and by Tuesday night, I had confirmed that I had COVID. Again, I don't know what it is about me, but I seem to be a magnet for COVID-19. I had it in February of 2020 before anyone even really knew what COVID was in Western Europe. I caught it again in June of 2022 after working as a guest speaker on a river cruise, and now again in June of 2023. So anyway, I have been wiped out this week. This episode was meant to cover two very different philosophical and religious movements that impacted the early 18th century and the colonies, but I managed to write the script for only one of them before deadline, so this is what you're going to get. And for those of you saying, hey, you promised us a podcast about what life was like in the early 18th century, not a podcast about religion. Yeah, well, unfortunately, life in the first half of the 1700s in the colonies can be described using exactly one word. Boring. Absolutely mind-numbing. Watching paint dry would be more interesting. Once I realized that, I said, okay, let's just start on some of the little factors during the first half of the century that will eventually get the American Revolution going in the second half. Because there is literally only so much time I can spend talking about 18th century agrarian farming communities before I lose my mind, and quite frankly, I don't think any of you want to hear that episode. I know that most of us have wished, especially in the past few years, that we could stop living in interesting times and stop experiencing historic events firsthand. But living through the utterly mind-numbing calm of the early 1700s in the American colonies would probably have been worse. Well, maybe. They did have smallpox, after all, which is a little worse than COVID in the grand scheme of things. And that reminds me, I need to do an episode on the history of vaccines in America soon. Because if you're an anti-vaxxer, George Washington would be ashamed of you. But despite the relative boredom of this period of American colonial history, this part of the century does lay the groundwork for some very important things to happen, which will lead to a much more interesting latter half of the century. Religious, philosophical, political, and financial events all begin to set the stage for a conflict between the British and the American colonists. The first of these that we're going to discuss is the Great Awakening. The First Great Awakening, anyway. The First Great Awakening is a series of religious revivals that take place between 1730 and 1755 that begins in England before making its way to the colonies, where it spreads like wildfire. And it then begins reshaping the American Protestant religious practice into something closer to the evangelical Christianity of today. Don't worry, I am not going to be getting into the specific religious doctrines here for the most part. The actual reformation of the religious dogma in the 18th century is neither my specialty, nor is it something that I can make interesting enough for you to not fall asleep while listening to this episode of the podcast. My framing of this event will have more to do with how the movement impacted the coming American Revolution, but here's a brief overview of what the awakening did to the religious practice in America. There are three leaders of this religious awakening that would have the most influence in the colonies. George Whitefield, or George Whitfield, depending upon which version of his written name you find in the records. John Wesley, and Jonathan Edwards. These three men together would articulate a theology of revival and salvation that really transcended denominational boundaries. Not that that ended sectarian infighting within Protestant communities at all, but it did offer some people some common ground. 
The Great Awakening is coming around about the same time that the philosophy of the Enlightenment is growing in popularity throughout Europe, England, and the colonies. The Enlightenment, which would also play a major role in the American Revolution, was emphasizing the importance of logic and reason and stressed the power of the individual to understand the universe based on scientific laws. While I wouldn't go so far as to say that the Enlightenment was atheistic in practice, it certainly didn't encourage anyone to take anything on faith alone. The Great Awakening, in reaction to this popular belief, turned away from church doctrine and put a much greater importance on the individual spiritual experience. Revival theology stressed that religious conversion was not only intellectual assent to Christian doctrine, but it had to be a new birth experienced in the heart. George Whitefield's message was simple. It was not enough to be baptized or go to church. Every person had to be converted by the Holy Spirit through a personal, wrenching examination of his or her own corruption and sinfulness. The 25-year-old English minister held massive crowds of attendees spellbound at sermons in New England, where he preached emotional pleas that each person receive God's gift of salvation and be born again. For those of you raised in evangelical churches like I was, some of this language should seem pretty familiar. Even more familiar should be the language of one of the other famous revivalist preachers, Jonathan Edwards. He's particularly well known for his sermon in 1741 titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Let me read you a brief excerpt from his work, just for context. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider... Or some loathsome insect over the fire abhors your sins and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him by your continual rejection of his son, infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire at every moment. Tis to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go down to hell the last night, that you were suffered and allowed to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone down to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn and joyous worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you don't this very moment drop down into hell. Yeah, I know. John Edwards really sounds like he was fun at parties. This type of fire and brimstone preaching would end up becoming a hallmark of evangelicalism, especially in America, where the fear of damnation is used as the primary way to encourage salvation, even to this day. Of course, not everyone was on board with the new religious awakening happening. Opponents accused the revivals of fostering disorder and fanaticism within the churches by enabling uneducated, itinerant preachers and encouraging ecstatic expressions of religious enthusiasm. The kind of emotional preaching and religious fervor that, again, anyone raised in evangelical churches would recognize. Emotional outbursts in the aisles, sharing of personal testimonies, the kind of behavior we see at big tent revivals and summer church camp salvation nights in the modern era. And look, I'm not putting the blame for modern evangelicalism only on the Great Awakening, but there is a certain truth to the fact that the emphasis on the personal relationship with God that the Great Awakening emphasized has influenced the kind of anti-intellectual version of evangelical Christianity that we see today. 
People who say things like, I don't have a PhD, but I do have the B-I-B-L-E, and that's all I need, and dismiss all historical and linguistic study of biblical texts as unnecessary to understanding the Word of God. Sorry, maybe I'm a little bit bitter about this. It's the religious trauma talking. Let's get back to the history, I guess. So how does this religious awakening impact the American Revolution? The most major contribution was how the Great Awakening encouraged challenges to authority. The conflict between the old-style churches and new evangelicals led to a lot of challenges of traditional religious authority. Local ministers resented the evangelical itinerant preachers who came to their towns uninvited. When revivalists drew massive crowds and preached in public, local ministers and churches viewed it as undermining their spiritual authority. Some evangelical preachers, such as New Jersey's Gilbert Tennant, took it even further. Tennant dared to suggest that many of the established church's pastors were not truly converted. They weren't true Christians. Tennant charged that these pastors were Christians only in name because they had not actually experienced the new birth. He called on true believers to leave the lukewarm established congregations and join new, pure churches, as he cautions in his 1740 sermon, The Danger of an Unconverted Ministry. And right reason will inform us how unfit instruments they are to negotiate that work. They pretend, too. Is a blind man fit to be a guide in a very dangerous way? Is a dead man fit to bring others to life? Is a madman fit to cast out devils? A rebel, an enemy of God, fit to be sent on an embassy of peace, to bring rebels into a state of friendship with God? A captive bound in the massy chains of darkness and guilt, a proper person to set others at liberty, a leper, or one that has plague sores upon him, fit to be a good physician? Is an ignorant rustic that has never been at sea in his life fit to be a pilot, to keep vessels from being dashed to pieces upon rocks and sandbanks? Isn't an unconverted minister like a man who would teach others to swim before he has learned it himself, and so is drowned in the act and dies like a fool? But it wasn't just religious authority that the revivalists questioned. It was also the long-standing social conventions. Following their conviction that all believers were equal before God, some evangelicals allowed women to preach informally during meetings. In Ipswich, Massachusetts, at a gathering of evangelicals in 1742, they were amazed when the spirit of prophecy filled a woman named Lucy Smith, and she preached for over two hours to the assembly. White evangelicals even ordained converted African Americans and Native Americans to preach or be missionaries in their own communities, and some of the early abolitionist rhetoric came from evangelical sermons. This represented a major challenge to the traditional radical and social hierarchies of the colonies, especially in the South. While Enlightenment philosophers are the ones we usually look at as the intellectual inspiration for the American Revolution, rightly so, as we can see the influence that those philosophers had on the Founding Fathers, we can't disregard the importance of the influence that the populism of the Great Awakening had in getting the common man to question authority, though it may have done more harm than good in the long run, as we can still see the hallmarks of this in the populace of today, the people who tell others to do their own research and refuse to trust the elites, but that's history for you. Actions have long-reaching consequences, and there's no way you can foresee how those consequences will play out in 300 years. But that's what we do as historians. Look at how the past shaped today, and through understanding that, hope that we can prevent our present from devastating the future the way past generations have done. Thank you all for tuning in to episode 13 to listen to me bitch about history. I'd love to be able to tell you exactly what the topic of next week's episode will be, but honestly, I'm in the process of mapping out how the show is going to approach the American Revolutionary Period. 
It's a wildly complex period which has a lot of moving parts that cover a wide variety of topics from religion to taxes. I can tell you that we will have a special guest on in the next few weeks to talk about the contributions of women to the American Revolution, especially the women who risked their lives working as spies and messengers during the period. It's going to be a fantastically interesting episode, but the exact date for it is not scheduled yet. There will also be an upcoming episode on the history of vaccines in America, as I mentioned during the intro, and I am working on another How Did America Get Here episode dealing with Moms for Liberty specifically, which I honestly feel I deserve hazard pay for researching and writing. Unfortunately, I don't get paid for this show, unless, of course, you guys want to sign up for the Patreon. As it is, just know that the next month or more will be dedicated to looking at the American Revolutionary Period from many different angles, understanding how and why it occurred and understanding the impact it had on American society. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you back here on Monday.